Well, when I titled my message, The End in Eternity, I wasn't thinking about the uh, time it would take for the presidential election results to be final. Now, while we're still waiting for the results to be official, God knows what is going to happen. I want to remind you, as we've seen over and over throughout the book of Daniel, God is the one who sets up and God is the one who takes down kingdoms. And so God already knows what is going to happen, not just in the days ahead, but all the way through the end of his eternal plan. You remember, as we saw last week in the first part of Daniel chapter 11, God revealed to Daniel and thus to us in amazing detail all of the kings that were to come, all of the things that were going to happen, not just for a few years, but a period covering almost 500 years. And as we look today at Daniel 11.36, God is going to tell us about another king that is to come and another war that will be fought. And unlike the things that we saw last week, which were all history to us in our day, these are things that are yet to take place. These are things that have not yet been fulfilled. As we're looking at this prophecy, I want to remind you that Daniel chapter 11 is part of Daniel 10 and Daniel 12. These three chapters are one vision that God gave to us. And while the things apply to us, the focus here is on the nation of Israel. Back in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 14, the angel told Daniel, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people that's the Jews, in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. There are promises that are related to Israel that are still to be fulfilled. There are covenants that God has with the nation of Israel that will take place like what we'll see in the millennial kingdom. And we as Gentile believers who have been grafted in with Israel share in the promises and blessings, but the church does not replace Israel. God has a specific set of covenants and promises for the nation of Israel, and these are yet to be fulfilled. And so as we're looking at this today, as we're looking at God's uh, prophecy, what I want you to remember is that God wins in the end. His people, his plan will come to fruition. There is a final satanic antichrist who is coming, as we're going to see today, and he will wage war here on the earth, but God will defeat him. God has a plan where when his son returns at the second coming, and then the eternal, the, the millennial kingdom is set up for the thousand years here on earth, and then the eternal kingdom that comes after. And so as we look at this today in Daniel chapter 11, Beginning in verse 36, I want you to keep that context in mind. So in Daniel eleven thirty-six, we read, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Now, reading this, it would be easy to think we're still dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes. If you were here last week, you'll remember in verses uh, 21 through 35, the last king we were looking at was a guy by the name of Antiochus. He was a wicked king. Many of the things that we just read describe him. You'll remember he desecrated the temple of God when he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then he set up a pagan image of the false Greek god Zeus, and he demanded the, the Jews to worship this uh, false god. And so while what we're looking at here applies to him, you'll remember that we saw God said there would be many antichrists who would come, and then there's this ultimate final antichrist, which is what the focus is on today. And we know that we're dealing with this final one and not Antiochus for a couple of reasons. One, we're told here this final antichrist will magnify himself above every god. 
And yet Antiochus set up a pagan image of a false god and said, worship this one. The final Antichrist says, I'm God. I deserve to be worshipped as such. So while Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest, he was not uh, claiming the status of the ultimate God as the Antichrist will. Another way we know we're dealing with a different guy is verse 36 begins with the word then. And so that shows us that something, this other king comes after something. And we find that at the end of verse 35. It says, until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. And then if you look at the bookend on the other end of the passage in Daniel 12:1, there it says, now at that time, Michael, that's Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now, written in the book is the Lamb's book of life. We're going to talk about that as you're going to see it come up a couple of times today in this message. And so that's very important talking about the Jews who are believers whose name are in this book. Now, the, the time period we're dealing with is a tribulation. It says here, this is a time of distress such as never occurred. And you'll remember that we looked at in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, something called the 77s. There was a prophecy revealed there where God gave us a 490-year period of events that were going to happen. And as we talked about back in Daniel 9, there was a period of seven times seven years equaling 49 years. And then there was the 62 sevens, which were another 434 years. Daniel said that this would bring us to the point where the Messiah would be cut off. And we saw that God had revealed down to the very day from the issuing of the decree of Artaxerxes Longamanus to this day on Friday, April the 3rd in 33 AD when Jesus was crucified. And so we saw the fulfillment of the first set of 77s. There is still one seven-year period yet to come, and that's the tribulation. That's this time of distress. And that's our focus today when these events are taking place. After Jesus was crucified, you'll remember that he rose from the dead three days later. He walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. And then Jesus appeared. Uh, After he appeared to these witnesses, he ascended into heaven and he said, I have to leave the earth so that the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, can come. And that's when the church age began. When the church was born, the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians. 2 Thessalonians, I mean 2 Corinthians tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? So as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we are in this church age period waiting for an event that will happen to restart the prophetic clock for this final seven-year period. As we've talked about through Daniel, one of the, the event that that is pointing to is the rapture. Now, you'll see that it's labeled here the pre-tribulational rapture because I believe the scriptures show us clearly that this is going to be the, the time where we as Christians are taken from the earth. You can read 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10-11, how it tells us we are going to be kept from this hour of testing here on the earth, this, this time of wrath that is to come. And that's that final 70th seven, the seven years of the tribulation. And so the word rapture means to be caught up. And so we as Christians are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, where's the Holy Spirit currently residing? 
He's resident within us as believers. And if all of the believers who make up the church are suddenly removed from the earth and the Holy Spirit, it appears, goes with us uh, back to heaven, then this is the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, that is suddenly removed. And so we, we are taken to heaven where we wait for the second coming of Christ where we're going to return to the earth. And as the Holy Spirit is removed, it opens the door for Antichrist to unleash his fury in this final seven years. One passage that describes this is Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 7. And it tells us this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, that's the Holy Spirit, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so as I mentioned, this is when the Holy Spirit is removed. And then at this point, Second Thessalonians 2, 8 through 9 goes on to say, and then, the, that, and then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So you'll remember that there is this unholy trinity. You have Satan. We know him as the fallen angel Satan. The, he has a number of names that he goes by. And then there are two other parts of the unholy trinity. You have the beast and the false prophet, and the antichrist is another name used of one of them. And so this is what we see. We're going to see there are these three individuals that are at work, but right now the prophecy is focused on this Antichrist, this one that Satan is going to uh, be propping up and using during this time. And as we've talked about, after the rapture is when the prophetic clock restarts. Daniel 9.27 told us about this final seven-year period. It said, and he, this is Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's a period of seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out um, on the one who makes desolate. So what we're told is in this final seven-year period of the tribulation, there's going to be relative peace at the first three and a half years for the nation of Israel. And this man of lawlessness, this this antichrist, is going to have a covenant with Israel where we're going to see he's actually protecting Israel as some of these initial events are taking place. But then at the midpoint, three and a half years, he's going to come into the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem and demand to be worshipped as God. He reveals himself for who he is, this demonic uh, representative of Satan. And this is what we're, we see in Daniel eleven thirty six through 37. It says he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God, notice big G, of gods. This is the true God of heaven. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. 
So what's happening, as we talked about in a previous message, is there, there are two groups of people, those who have given in to the compromises and those who have stood for Christ. You remember we talked about those in the day of Judas Maccabee who, who stood for God and opposed the, the, the blasphemous worship and things. Well, here in the end times, the same thing's going to happen. All true believers were raptured. But the Bibles remained, the sermons stayed, people who had sat in church and had heard the gospel and heard things, who thought they were saved but were not, they were left behind when the rapture occurred. And many of these come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. And Satan will have fury for them. There will be the tribulation believers. Many will be killed during that time. But there will also be the non-believers who worship Satan, who throw in with the, the you know, unholy trinity. And so these two different groups are at play, and this, this group that is worshiping Satan and, and following the blasphemous worship, they're described in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. There it says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So again, we see this book where those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus are said to be the believers in in Jesus, and they're a different group. These are the ones that are uh, standing for God, and many of them will be martyred. Antichrist is going to force this worship through his military might, and this is what his trust is in, as we see in Daniel eleven thirty eight. It says, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. So this demonic king, remember, has come to power as a man of peace. Think of the chaos you think is happening in our day and multiply that infinite by, you know, just off the charts because when the rapture occurs and all believers are removed, if conservatively, even a quarter of those who claim to be Christians are true believers, this world uh, will be in utter chaos. Economic systems will collapse. Militaries will fall. Uh, Think of all the car wrecks and plane crashes and on and on that are going to happen when believers are suddenly raptured at that moment. And so the world is going to be in complete disarray and disorder. Antichrist is going to come and he is going to uh, be the one who is going to bring about some semblance of order to the world. And so during this time, they're going to have, um, this is going to be happening on the earth, but there are going to be governments that suddenly turn from following him. We're told here in Daniel 11.39 that he's, he's going to have, it says, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And so what's going to happen is he's going to expand his power. He's going to make alliances, giving uh, riches and land to his allies. We see it's not only human forces that he will have help from, but it's as a foreign god. Remember the unholy trinity. So Satan is going to be the one giving him power as well. Now, Revelation 13, 11 through 12 tells us about this help. It says, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So this unholy trinity is going to seem to have everything under control. But then forces are going to arise that oppose him that we see in Daniel 11.40. 
It says, and at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. And so what we saw last week in the first part of Daniel chapter 11 is there would be this back and forth battle that is taking place. You remember Israel geographically was between the kingdom of Syria and Egypt down to the south. Remember there were the four countries that Antiochus, I mean Alexander the Great's empire was divided among. And you had the uh, empire of Seleucus to the, to the north and the Ptolemies to the south. And so the same thing is going to happen. We're dealing with Israel geographically during the end time events. And there's going to be this back and forth war. So the geography is the same, but the forces have changed because we're now at the end time that we see in verse 40. It says the king of the south, which again is identified as this region of Egypt in verse 42. But notice this is not the only country that comes from the south because now you see African armies that are joining in this uh, attack. It says in Daniel eleven forty-two through 43, then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Now, there are other attacks that are going to come from the east and the north, as you see in Daniel 11.44, when we get there. Now, these things are described in the book of Ezekiel. I want you to remember, uh, we're dealing with the end-time events, and so all of the, the things that are revealed in Scripture are in play here. People think sometimes just of the book of Revelation or Daniel as being related to the end times. But the word Bible literally means the book. And all 66 books of the Bible uh, are one singular story that reveal God's plan. And in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, we're told about some of the events taking place during this tribulation. Ezekiel 38.2 says, Set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus talked about the land of Magog in his day. And he revealed that this was the land of the Scythians. And so if you look at a map, a modern map, it's the area north and northeast of the Black Sea and east of the Caspian Sea. And if you're saying, Roger, my geography is a little foggy, could you help me out a little more? Uh, if you know where the countries of Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan are, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, I've been in all three of these countries. They're a part of the former Soviet Union. Those of you who are old enough to remember when Russia was called the Soviet Union, then it broke apart, and we called it the Commonwealth of Independent States. And now there's this you know, attempt in some places to kind of reunify parts of this area. But all three of these are dealing with that northern area that you can think of in terms of the old Russian empire. And so that's one area where these attacks are going to come from. Rosh is the name of modern Iran, and Tubal is where Turkey is on a map in our day. And so if you look at where this red arrow is, if you've seen my entire end-time chart, you, you'll recognize this battle of Gog and Magog that takes place in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 7 through 9. Now that is not the battle we're talking about. The battle of Gog and Magog we're dealing with now happens in the tribulation. 
And you're saying, well, wait a minute, Roger, are, are there, what's going on with these battles? I want you to understand the names Gog and Magog are dealing, are a generic term for two things. One is the enemies of God's people. And the second is the geographic region where these battles take place. So we can have multiple battles in these re- from enemies of these regions who are enemies of God's people. The battle at the end of the millennial kingdom is over like that. Jesus just wipes them out. The battle that's taking place in the tribulation uh, we find described as being uh, a longer period of time, the results of it, in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 39 and verses 11 through 15, it says that it's going to take seven months to bury all the corpses from the battle. Think of the body count that will take seven months to bury. Uh, You read in another passage where the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle. That's how much carnage there is. As you read in uh, Ezekiel 39, 9 through 10, it tells us the destroyed weapons will provide fuel for the nation of Israel for seven years. So as they're burning off the fuel and the implements and all the things that were used from these attacking armies, it's going to provide what Israel needs for seven years. So this isn't the final battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. This is what's happening during the seven years of the tribulation. Now, uh, as I said, Gog and Magog are terms identifying the enemies of God and where they're coming from. And this region to the north is going to be very active in all of the end times. As you read in Ezekiel 38.6, it says, Gomer and all its hordes, the house of Togomah and the, and the north quarters. Uh, these names, again, include Russia and Ukraine, and it's also the region of Turkey near the Syrian border on our modern maps. Uh, as these armies from the north attack, Ezekiel 38.5 says, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put will also attack. Persia is where Iran is in our day. Uh, Put covers the area of ancient Libya, and Ethiopia is over in East Africa, and it includes the area of Sudan that is on our current map of Africa. These are age-old Arab enemies, and what they're going to do is they're going to come against Israel. They're going to seek to destroy uh, the nation of Israel. Now, not all of the Arab armies are going to come because as we're about to see in Daniel 11.41, it says some are going to sit back and watch Edom, Moab, And the sons of Ammon, this is the area of Jordan just east of where Israel is. They're going to sit out the attack. Uh, They're not going to come against the Antichrist and against the nation of Israel. So as he retaliates, he doesn't, you know, fully decimate these countries. I want to remind you again, we're dealing with the seven years of the tribulation. In the first part of the tribulation, Antichrist has this covenant with Israel. And so even though he hates the Jews, even though he hates the nation, he doesn't reveal that till the three and a half years in. And so at this point, he is actually the one who is uh, going to have to protect Israel from these attacking hordes that are coming. Uh, it's what we see in Daniel eleven forty through 41. It says at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. That's Antichrist. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. And he will enter countries. He will overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land. That's Israel. 
And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So as I said, this area where Jordan is, they don't attack and he leaves them alone. So Antichrist is going to counterattack. He's going to go throughout and decimate these enemy nations. He's going to put down the rebellion. Now, as he's victorious, I want you to notice it's not through his own power. We're about to read a passage that shows who makes Antichrist victorious. And it's not the foreign god Satan. It's actually the true god of heaven. Now, you may be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is Antichrist. This is Satan's representative. And yet, as he's risen up and he's over the Jews, God is involved in helping him defeat others. Friends, if you've ever read Isaiah 55, 8, 9, there it tells us, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And there are times we look at the world around us and we scratch our heads and we say, God, I don't understand. Why are you using this wicked uh, nation or, or ruler or person and raising them up when the righteous are suffering? Or God, why are you blessing this, this you know, unrighteousness in the world while these righteous people are suffering? What, what are you doing? And again, as we're thinking of the day in which we live, if you're confused about events in our time and you're saying, God, I don't understand what's going on, uh, this, is, this is the cliff notes. God wins. God's in control. God has a plan. And he will exercise his plan to fruition. And so if right now things seem uncertain and, and, and you don't understand what's going on, uh, peek in the very back of the book and what you find is we win. God's in control and it's all going to come out just as he planned. And so as we're looking at this, uh, I told you that God is the one who gives Antichrist victory. And we see that in Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23. It says, and it will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger and I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother and with pestilence and with blood I shall enter into judgment with him and I shall rain on him and on his troops and on the many people who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. And I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. God says as this is happening, he's going to bring earthquakes. He's going to cause confusion among the nations. They're going to attack each other instead of uh, fighting uh, Israel. He says I'm going to send this supernatural rain of, of hailstones and fire. God says, I'm going to crush these armies that are coming to attack the Jews. Remember, after the chaos that followed the rapture, Antichrist rose to power. He was able to consolidate the world. There's then been rebellion among some of the nations that are like, we're, we're not going to follow you anymore and we're going to attack Israel. And as Antichrist's power has suddenly been challenged, he shows who he really is. This is when the abomination of desolation takes place. Three and a half years in, he, he says, I'm, I'm going to, you, you've challenged my power, so now I'm going to show you who I really am. And that's when he demands to be worshipped as God. And this sets off the final three and a half years of intense persecution where Israel is this special target of his wrath. 
Daniel 11.44 says, But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So Antichrist receives word after this initial rebellion is put down that there's a next wave coming from the north and the east. And and he's like, how can this be? I just crushed these areas. Well, there's an army of 200 million that is going to come. It it destroys a third of mankind as you read Revelation chapter 9 and verses 13 through 21. And if you're saying, well, is that number real? Uh, Yeah, it's real. It's a literal army. Remember a couple years ago, Red China boasted of having a 200 million man army. And so there's going to be this army from the east as well as from the north that is coming again. And verse 45 says at that point, he's going to consolidate his armies and his power in the land of Israel. It says in Daniel uh, verse 45, and he, that's Antichrist, will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy land, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. As you look at this map, the arrow shows you where Jerusalem is, and you'll notice it says between the seas. You have the Mediterranean Sea to the west, you have the Sea of Galilee to the north, and you have the Dead Sea to the southeast, and the holy mountain is Israel. And so what it tells us is Antichrist has now moved into Israel. He's, he's there in Jerusalem. Remember, he, the abomination of desolation has taken place. He set himself up in the temple. And something else that happens in this triangle is there's a place called Megiddo. And this is a, a picture of the valley that surrounds uh, the mountain of Megiddo. You see Megiddo down in the bottom where the red arrow is. You've got Nazareth to the north, Mount Tabor, hill, the hill of Moray. And so this vast plain is where the armies of the world are going to gather for this final climactic battle. There was a great conqueror of the past by the name of Napoleon. And Napoleon stood there in this valley and as he looked out at this, this expanse, he said the armies of the world could fight here and they will. Because as Revelation 16, 16 tells us, and they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon. The Hebrew word for mountain is Har. And so when we talk about Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, where this is, Har Megiddon is where we get our name Armageddon for this final climactic battle that's going to take place. And so... We find this battle described in Revelation chapter 19 in verses 17 through 21. It says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and his army. That's Jesus Christ is the one on, the, on his horse returning with the armies of heaven. It says, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet. Remember this unholy trinity. Two of these three are seized. It says, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Remember, it takes seven months to bury the dead. 
So God is also using these birds and scavengers to, to remove uh, this, the, the rotting corpses from the earth. It's the fulfillment of what Daniel 11.45 tells us where it says, Antichrist will come to his end and no one will help him. Remember, he was seized and thrown into the lake of fire. It's the fulfillment of 2 Thessalonians 2.8, which says, And that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to the end by the appearance of his coming. This is the second coming of Christ as he physically comes back to the earth. As these armies gather at Armageddon to fight, Israel is in danger of being wiped out, of being destroyed. But this is when Jesus returns at the second coming. The battle of Armageddon, Har Megiddo, takes place. And this is also the time when Israel comes to faith in the Lord. As, as well, I'm, I'll, I'll mention that in just a moment. Let me tell you about the second coming. Second, uh, Zechariah 14, 2 through 5, tells us about this second coming of Christ. It says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight those against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountain for the valley of the mountain will reach of the val- the, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This is the second coming of Christ. This is where Jesus returns from heaven with the armies of heaven, which include us who were raptured as believers earlier. And as Jesus returns, you notice this isn't a rapture where we meet the Lord in the air. It says Jesus physically returns and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives and there's a geographic shift in the landscape where he opens up the mountains so the Jews have an escape route to go out. The nation of Israel is saved, not just physically, but spiritually. Friends, this is the time when the Jews come in mass to receive Jesus as the Messiah. You will hear people sometimes say, well, we don't need to share the gospel with the Jews. They're saved anyway. No, the Jews have to place their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, just as Gentiles do. Remember, we saw their name is written in the book of life in Daniel 12. Uh, We're going to see their name is written in the book of life in other places. The scriptures are clear that unless you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal savior, then you you are not saved. Your name is not in the book of life. But this is the point where the nation of Israel will recognize Christ for who he is. Hamashiach, the Hebrew for the Messiah, the promised one who would come. We find this in Zechariah 12.10. Remember, the second coming is described here in Zechariah 14 and two chapters before. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the, inhabit- on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for the only son, an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. 
Jesus returns physically at the second coming. They see him returning from heaven. They see the marks of the crucifixion on him. The nation at that point sees their redemption is in only the Messiah, and they come to faith in and, and, and Jesus as the Messiah. And that's when the nation of Israel in mass is saved. There are believing Jews in our day. There are believing Jews here at Wayside. We call them Messianic or completed Jews is the theological term for a Jewish person who has come to embrace the Messiah. And there are believing Jews in this day. There are ministries like Chosen People Ministry, One for Israel, Jews for Jesus, countless wonderful evangelistic ministries of Jewish believers who are sharing the gospel with other Jews. And so they have to place their faith and trust in the Messiah just as we do. God protects his people physically and spiritually they're saved as well. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 tells us, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Now there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now it goes on to say, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And because I think we've covered enough today, I'm going to keep that for next week. Because what that's talking about is the resurrection of the Jews, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. When it says they sleep in the dust of the ground, these are the believing Jews from the beginning of time, like Abraham, who believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They are resurrected. Remember, there are tribulation believers who have been killed during the tribulation. They will be resurrected. So next Sunday, we're going to talk about the many resurrections that have taken place in the scripture, and we're going to see specifically what this is dealing with. Now, what I want to highlight today is the contrast between those who serve Satan where it says they had no one to help them versus the people of God whom we've seen have been given lots of help. Jesus Christ returns. The armies of heaven return. The angelic host of heaven, like Michael the archangel and others, are fighting for God's people. As we've been looking at all these prophecies in Daniel, you've heard me say over and over, those who belong to God win. And friends, we do even when it seems like some of the believers have lost because they were killed, what God says is the story's not over. I'm going to resurrect them. They will have eternal life. They will be a part of the millennial kingdom, this thousand years that occurs here on earth. And then they will be with God for all eternity in heaven. I said this Where we spend eternity is based upon whether or not our name is in the book of life. So I want to end by having you turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. That book of life is mentioned in Daniel 12.1 and we see it again in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20.11 through 15 it says, And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Notice that's plural. Books were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. Their name is not in the book of life. This is the resurrection of the unrighteous dead. 
It says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the great white throne judgment is what we're looking at. The millennial kingdom has occurred, this final battle of Gog and Magog, and then all the unbelievers from the beginning of time are are resurrected, and they stand before the great white throne judgment where John 5.22 tells us it's Jesus Christ who's on the throne. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, it tells us. And as the unbelieving dead are, are before the great white throne, Jesus looks at each and every one, And he says, your name is not in the book of life. Friends, this is not a judgment for a Christian. Believers are not at the great white throne judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, our eternal souls go immediately into the presence of the Lord as New Testament believers. And so this is a judgment for those who said, I have rejected Jesus' payment in my place. And so Jesus says, then you will be rejected because he says, I look in the singular book of life. Your name's not here. So you are telling me you want to do it your way. If you're somebody who says, I feel like I've lived a good enough life to get to God, that I don't need Jesus sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sins, then this is describing you. Because it says God will look in the books. He has your resume. He has every single thing you have ever done in your life. And he can say, you know, there's lots of impressive things here. I see lots of great things you did. But he says, I also see where you sinned. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is a sinner. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means we were not perfect. We lied, we cheated, we stole, we did something wrong, we disobeyed God and his word at some point in our life. And Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. And so if you're trusting in yourself and how you've lived your life, God says, because I am a holy and just God, I will give you what you deserve. And he looks at all the good things you've done. And he says, I also see you've sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said you've rejected my free gift of grace. So you have to pay the penalty of death yourself. Remember we saw earlier in Daniel 9 where it said the Messiah would come to put an end to iniquity. To make atonement for sin. The word for atonement literally means to pay the account. The term there is expiation. It's a legal term that means the penalty was paid in full. The account was closed. And Jesus said that my blood washed away the sins of those who received my payment. But because those at the great white throne judgment have rejected his payment, Jesus says, you have to make the payment yourself. So you will suffer the second death. Remember, they've all died physically to be there. The second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. It's what we call hell. And God says, those who have rejected me will be rejected for all eternity. As we end today, the question for you is, have you received God's great gift of eternal life? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. 
Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The question this morning for you and those of you worshiping with us online is, have you received Jesus' great gift of eternal life? Have you accepted by faith his death as payment for your sins? Do you believe that after he was buried in the tomb, he rose from the dead three days later? If all of this other stuff has not been clear to you, this is all you need to walk away from this message with. Have you received Jesus as your Savior or have you rejected him? If you've rejected his payment in your place, you will have to make the payment of the second death yourself. But that doesn't have to be your eternal destiny because God offers you that gift of new and eternal life. And as we end today, I'm giving you the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior, to acknowledge in your heart that you've made mistakes in your life, that you're a sinner. And to say to God, I recognize because I'm a sinner, I owe a penalty of death. But Jesus, I thank you that you came and you paid my penalty. You went to the cross to pay that penalty of death for me. And today, Jesus, I want to accept that gift of life. If you'd like to do that, I invite you now to pray this prayer with me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can do this at home where you're worshiping with us. You can do it here or out at Stone Oak, wherever you are worshiping this morning. I invite you, if you're ready to receive God's gift of grace, to pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know, God, that as a sinner, I deserve the penalty of death. I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place, to pay the penalty of death that I owe for my sins. Jesus, I accept your death as my payment. I believe you died for me and you rose again three days later, that you showed you had conquered sin and death, that you proved you were the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And today, Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. Thank you for giving me the gift of new and eternal life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you now understand for the first time what it means to be saved by grace, I invite you to come and talk with me up here at the front afterwards. I'd love to make sure you understand what you just did. If you're worshiping online with us, please email us. Let us know that you did this as well so we can send you materials and help you to begin to get established in your walk with Christ. For the rest of us who have already received Christ as our Savior, this is a time for us to go into the world in a time where the world is in chaos, where people are unsure of what's happening, to tell them about the one who wins in the end and how they can be on the winning side. God sent his son to save us. Our citizenship, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not here on earth. Philippians tells us our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where we are going home one day. So as long as we're here on earth, let's be citizens of heaven, share the good news of the gospel, be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. Thank you again for worshiping with us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.